This week is known as Holy Week. And if you've ever wondered whether Holy Week is really all that important, consider this. In the Bible, there are four books that tell the story of Jesus' life. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call those the four Gospels. And in those four Gospels, almost a third, 33% of what we know about Jesus' life comes from this one week. It's amazing when you think about it. There's, there's even one Gospel that doesn't say anything about Jesus' birth, but all four of them say a whole lot about Holy Week. So as we talk through some of the events of Holy Week, I want you to keep two things in mind the entire time. First of all, everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. It's going to seem as though a lot of things are happening to Jesus, as if those things are being done to Jesus by people who have a whole lot more power than him. But the reality is that Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. He allowed all of it to happen. He even dictated how a lot of it was going to happen. Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. Why? Well, because of the second thing that I want you to remember. Everything that Jesus went through, he went through for you. There are plenty of other evidence, plenty of other events in the life of Jesus that we might look at and, and take away some sort of lesson like, oh, there, there's something I need to change, something I need to do differently in my life. But when it comes to Holy Week, there's really just one point to it all. Jesus did this for you. He did it to save you from sin. He did it to rescue you from death. He did it to set you free from the devil. Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly and he went through for you. Okay, so are you ready? It all started yesterday, the day that we know as Palm Sunday. Everyone was heading to Jerusalem for probably the most important Jewish festival of the year, the festival known as Passover. And this was going to be the big showdown between Jesus and his enemies. Jesus' enemies were waiting to kill him. Jesus knew it. If you've ever seen a movie where it all comes down to one final battle scene at the end, right before that battle scene, all the armies kind of gather up and, and line up ready for that final showdown, that's Palm Sunday. And since that's the case, it, it makes what we read about Palm Sunday rather surprising. You read the accounts of Palm Sunday and it almost seems as though the main character in the story isn't even Jesus. It sort of seems like the main character is this donkey. In some of the accounts, more than half of the space is all revolving around this donkey. Jesus tells two of his disciples to go up to the village ahead of them. He tells them they'll find a donkey there. He tells them to bring it back. He tells them that, that when they start to do this, the owners are going to stop them and ask them what they're doing. He tells them exactly what they're supposed to say. And then it happens. They go to the village ahead of them. They start to untie this donkey. The owners ask them what they're doing. They say exactly what Jesus tells them to say and, and it works. They bring the donkey back. All of this space, all of this attention given to this animal. What in the world? Well, in Jesus' day, a, a donkey was a symbol of royalty. A donkey was an animal that a king would ride. But a king would ride a donkey only after he had secured peace. Only after every threat to his power had been put down and every enemy had been defeated. Obviously, a king would ride a donkey only after he had secured peace because if there were still enemies, if there were still battles that needed to be fought, then obviously a donkey would not be his animal of choice. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey, a symbol of royalty, a symbol of peace. But of course, there was no peace. As I mentioned, the battle hadn't even happened yet. Jesus' enemies were sitting there waiting for him, waiting to put him to death. And so Jesus rides into this battle with the absolute worst choice of animal possible. It's like he rides into Jerusalem with both of his hands tied behind his back. His enemies are waiting there to kill him and Jesus simply places himself at their mercy. Remember what I said? 
Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. Jesus is the one calling the shots. Jesus is the one pulling the strings. He's orchestrating the events exactly how he wants them, right down to the animal that he rode. And why? Because everything that Jesus went through, he went through for you. The other big part of the Palm Sunday story is the reception that Jesus got when he rode into Jerusalem. As he rode along that path, there were people on both sides of the path waving palm branches as he went. In fact, that's why we call it Palm Sunday, of course. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem, they all shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means, God, save us. God, save us from our sin. God, rescue us from death. God, set us free from the control and the power of the devil. Hosanna is the Palm Sunday prayer of the people of God. And because Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, that prayer has been fully answered. This week we're talking about the events of Holy Week. And yesterday I told you that there were two things that you needed to keep in mind throughout the whole week. First of all, everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. And secondly, everything that Jesus went through, he went through for you. So we're going to fast forward a bit, all the way from Sunday to Thursday. Jesus had just celebrated that important Jewish festival, that Passover meal with his disciples. He had just instituted the meal that we know as Holy Communion. Pastor John Enter had a whole series about that. But now it was time for Jesus and his disciples to take a short walk out of the city, across a valley, up a hill, into an olive grove known as the Garden of Gethsemane. That was important for a couple of reasons. First of all, this was a familiar walk for Jesus and his disciples. In fact, we're told that every evening during Holy Week, Jesus walked out to this garden at night with his disciples, which meant that if anyone was looking for Jesus, they knew exactly where they could find him. And that included Judas. You might remember that Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but we're told that the devil had filled Judas's heart with greed. And so Judas had agreed to betray Jesus, to hand Jesus over and deliver him to his enemies in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. And so when it finally came time for Judas to go to those enemies and lead the detachment of soldiers to Jesus to find him, Judas knew exactly where to go. That walk to the Garden of Gethsemane was also important because in that garden, Jesus and the rest of his disciples would part ways. In fact, Jesus warned them ahead of time that when the opposition showed up and when the temperature got turned up, they would abandon him in fear. They would desert him in his hour of greatest need. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew that one of his friends would betray him. And yet he went anyway. Jesus knew that the rest of his friends would abandon him. And yet he went anyway. Remember what I said? Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. And sure enough, it happened just as he knew it would. Jesus was arrested in that garden and by the very next sundown, he would be dead. He would be lying lifeless in a tomb. But everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. And in fact, what happened in that garden really reminds us why. See, when it came time for Jesus to do what he had come to this earth to do, he needed to part ways with his friends. He needed to go it alone. Because the people that Jesus came to suffer and die for included those friends. I'm guessing that you would consider yourself a friend of Jesus. And of course, that's, that's wonderful. So would I. But as we see in this story, sometimes even Jesus' friends betray him. 
Sometimes even Jesus' friends desert him. And I'm guessing there have been times when you've been that kind of friend to Jesus. When you've exchanged your loyalty to Jesus for your love for something else. When the opposition has shown up and the temperature has turned up and the last place you wanted to be was right by Jesus' side. Even friends of Jesus sometimes desert and sometimes abandon, which is why everything that Jesus went through, he went through for you. Not with you, not in cooperation with you, not with you helping him or him helping you. No, everything he went through, he went through for you. One other thing happened in that garden that evening. Jesus' willingness to go through with all of this was sort of put to the test, you might say. Before Judas or any of the soldiers showed up, Jesus had spent several hours in intense prayer. Over and over and over again, he asked that if there was any way that he could be spared from the suffering, he knew that he was coming and still save us, that that his Father in heaven would allow him to do that. And yet every time that he prayed, Jesus submitted his will to his Father's. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And so thankfully, when the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer was no, Jesus' answer to his Father's plan, his answer for you, was yes. This week we're talking about the events of Holy Week. And hopefully by now you remember the two things that I've told you to keep in mind throughout the entire week. Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. And everything that Jesus went through, he went through for you. Okay, so Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually he was led to stand trial before a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that year and as the high priest, he might say that he was sort of at the the very top of the pyramid. He represented the entire nation before God and, and the things that he did as high priest were done on behalf of the entire nation. Caiaphas was also the head of a group known as the Sanhedrin. We might compare them to our United States Supreme Court. They were the highest ruling council in the land. And so there in the middle of the night, while everyone was sleeping and when no one could object, the Sanhedrin convened this trial, a trial that was an absolute sham. They had their verdict made up even before the trial began. The only thing they were doing was trying to find some sort of excuse, some sort of evidence to give them the basis for their verdict. Well, in the Jewish legal system, It required two witnesses to come forth to establish testimony as certain and valid. And yet, even though all kinds of witnesses came forward to testify against Jesus, none of their testimony agreed. And so finally, Caiaphas took matters into his own hands. I don't know if you can imagine a supposedly impartial judge presiding over a case but then also acting as the prosecuting attorney. That's what Caiaphas did. And so he charged Jesus under oath Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And under oath, Jesus said, Yes, I am. Jesus was smart enough to realize what that meant. That was all the evidence that they needed. That was blasphemy to to claim to be the Son of God. And so that was all the reason they needed to condemn him as being worthy of death. Once again, everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. But why? Well, there was something else going on as that trial before Caiaphas was taking place. Just outside, while while Jesus was inside, taking an oath that he knew would lead to his death, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, was outside taking a few oaths of his own. Since the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter had been following from a distance, curious to see what was going to happen to Jesus. 
And as he sat out there in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, there was a servant girl who came up to him and said, Oh, I know you. You're one of Jesus' disciples. Peter denied it. Two other times that evening, there were people who said the very same thing. I know you. I recognize you. You're one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter denied it vehemently. In fact, he swore and called down curses on himself if he wasn't telling the truth. He denied that he even knew who Jesus was, even though earlier that evening he had promised that he would never do such a thing. Yesterday we saw how sometimes even friends of Jesus betray him or deny him. And it's also true that sometimes even friends of Jesus are so worried about what their friendship with Jesus might cost them that the thing that they're most vehement about, the thing that they're most serious about is demonstrating that they have no affiliation with Jesus. Which again tells us why everything that Jesus went through, he went through for you. See, there's some strange and sweet irony in the role that Caiaphas played in these events of Holy Week. It was a few days before this, maybe, maybe a week before all of these things had happened, that Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders were sitting around discussing what they should do with Jesus. And in that meeting, Caiaphas stood up and he said, Don't you know that it's, it's better if one man dies than that the entire nation would perish? As high priest, Caiaphas was well aware of this concept of substitution, that that one person would represent the whole nation, that what happened to one person counted for the entire nation, that one life could be sacrificed to save the whole nation. In his role as a high priest, that life that was sacrificed usually involved some sort of animal, just like the lamb that was sacrificed at this Passover festival that they were celebrating. But when it came to the life of Jesus, Caiaphas' words took on a whole new meaning. Yes, there have been times in our lives when we have betrayed Jesus, abandoned Jesus, even been ashamed to admit that we knew Jesus. And for those sins, we all deserve to die. But thankfully, there is a substitute. There is a life that has been offered so that our lives could be spared. I'm sure Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying. But thankfully, he was absolutely right. This week we're talking about the events of Holy Week, the events that led up to Jesus' death on the cross. Where we left off, Jesus had been taken to stand trial before a man named Caiaphas, the high priest, and and the Jewish ruling council. Very first thing in the morning, they decided that he was guilty and officially condemned him as being worthy of death. But here's here's where things got a little bit tricky for those Jewish leaders. You see, in those days, Judea was part of the Roman Empire. It was under Roman rule, which meant that there were certain punishments that the Jewish people were allowed to carry out against convicted criminals and certain punishments that they were not. And the punishment that they had in mind for Jesus, death by crucifixion, they were not allowed to carry out, which meant that they needed to take Jesus to stand trial before the Roman governor at the time, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. It also meant that they needed to bring some charges against Jesus that Pontius Pilate would actually care about. And so they they charged Jesus with being a revolutionary. They charged him with leading up and, and stirring up rebellion and insurrection against Rome. Now, when you read through the account of the trial before Pontius Pilate, one thing is clear. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. After questioning Jesus, that was the conclusion he came to and that was what he told the people. And yet the people still cried out for his death. So from that point forward, Pilate tried to do anything that he could to make them happy. He tried to offer them a deal 
He said, tell you what, I can either release this man named Barabbas, who actually was an insurrectionist and a convicted murderer, or I can release Jesus. Deal backfired. They chose Barabbas. Then Pilate tried to have Jesus flogged. Brutal punishment where a prisoner's bare back would just be torn open by a whip that had little pieces of bone or metal attached to the cords. Pilate had Jesus flogged and then brought him out before the Jewish leaders to see if that would make them happy, but it didn't work. Pilate tried to do anything that he could to make those Jewish leaders happy to satisfy them because because he knew that Jesus was innocent. And yet at the end of the day, even though Pilate knew the right thing to do, he also knew the politically expedient thing to do. From the rest of history, we know that Pontius Pilate's term as governor had already been marked with quite a bit of controversy. There was a long history of attempted rebellion and dissatisfaction on the part of the Jewish people against the Roman rule. And already during Pilate's term as governor, on two separate occasions, he had sort of provoked the Jewish people and stirred up that rebellious spirit. And so Pilate knew that he was down to his very last strike. So even though he knew the right thing to do, he was going to be willing to do whatever it was that made those Jewish leaders happy. And so sure enough, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. And we might look at Pilate's behavior and and just shake our heads in disgust. I mean, how could anyone be so spineless? How could anyone be so gutless so as to not do the right thing? And yet remember those two things that we're supposed to keep in mind this week. Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. And everything Jesus went through, he went through for you. See, there have been plenty of times, I'm sure, where we too have been spineless in the face of temptation, where we have done what is expedient instead of doing what is right. And so thankfully, what Pontius Pilate had concluded about Jesus was absolutely correct, only even far more than he knew. Jesus wasn't simply innocent of the charges that were brought against him. Jesus was innocent, period. And so all the things that Jesus was about to suffer, he was about to suffer innocently. Not for anything he had done, but for everything we had done. Right before handing Jesus over to be crucified, Pilate had this bowl of water and he, he sort of symbolically washed his hands with that water to say that, that he was washing his hands from the guilt of Jesus' death. Of course, what a foolish thing to think that that would actually work. All the water in the world could not cleanse Pilate of his guilt, his responsibility in Jesus' crucifixion. Just like all the water in all the oceans of the world could not cleanse us of our sin. And yet, thankfully, because Pilate was right, because Jesus suffered innocently, the blood of Jesus purifies us from every sin. This week we've been talking about the events of Holy Week and really everything leads up to today, the day that we know as Good Friday. After Pontius Pilate had condemned Jesus to be put to death, he was led outside of the city where he would be crucified. If you know anything about ancient crucifixions, you know that it was probably one of the most painful and cruel ways to put a person to death that has ever been devised. The person who was crucified didn't die from injury or blood loss. No, as they hung there from that cross, the weight of their body compressed their lungs, making it impossible for them to breathe. And so every time they needed air, they needed to be able to push themselves up with their legs just to be able to get a gasp of air. Well, eventually, after struggling for hours or maybe even days, they eventually got too weak to be able to push themselves up and eventually they suffocated. 
It was brutal. It was agonizing. It was inhumane. And so it's no wonder that the Romans used crucifixions not just as a, a method of execution, but as a method of intimidation. As people walked by and saw those criminals suspended between earth and heaven, Rome was sending a very clear message. This is what happens to anyone who dares to disobey. And yet, as we think about the events of Good Friday, it's maybe easy for us to become so focused on the physical agony that Jesus endured that we forget the significance of it all. And so thankfully, the Gospel writers and Jesus himself make sure that we don't miss it. And I want to focus specifically on two of the things that Jesus said while he was hanging there on that cross. First of all, at a certain point in the afternoon, in a very loud voice, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would God forsake his own son? Well, it's because sin separates people from a holy God. And on that cross, Jesus was paying for, Jesus was being charged with the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death on the cross isn't just a sad story. It isn't just a, a gross miscarriage of justice. It isn't just one more example of people with power oppressing someone with none. No, on that cross, Jesus was being charged with, Jesus was making payment for the sins of the whole world. And that leads to the second thing Jesus said that I want to focus on. Right near the end of his life, Jesus asked for a drink so that his, his mouth could be wet and he could muster up one last little bit of strength to be able to say as loud as he possibly could, it is finished. Payment complete. If our sin is pictured as this mountain of debt before God, then Jesus simply didn't make the, the down payment so that the debt collector would get off of our back. He didn't lower the interest rate so that we could be able to afford the monthly payments. No, Jesus paid the whole thing, every last cent. So did it work? Was Jesus right when he said it is finished? You might remember that earlier in the week I mentioned how in the Jewish legal system, every testimony needed to be established by two or three witnesses in order for it to be valid and certain. And it's interesting to note how often in Jesus' life he applied that principle. He would say something about himself, but then he would also appeal to his Father in heaven as his second witness. And on that cross, just before he died, Jesus did that one final time. He cried out, it is finished, paid in full. And then the very last thing that he did was he entrusted his life to his Father in heaven. He committed that final verdict to a second witness. And as we know, just a few days later, the Father in heaven would say exactly the same thing. See, as we remember Good Friday today, we don't spend our time pretending for the next 48 hours that we don't know how everything turned out. No, in fact, the only reason we remember Good Friday in the first place is because we do know how it turned out. You might say that we look at Good Friday already with our Easter Sunday goggles on. On Good Friday, Jesus entrusted that final verdict to that second witness. And on Easter Sunday, God the Father said exactly what his son had said on Friday afternoon, it is finished. The truth of our forgiveness is absolutely certain. And that explains what has happened. As I mentioned, in those days, the cross was this symbol of not just torture and pain and agony, but intimidation. As people saw those criminals, they were supposed to look away and get back to their dutiful, obedient lives. And yet, Jesus' crucifixion has changed everything. Now, that cross is a symbol of beauty. 
We hang it up in our churches and in our homes and around our necks. We look to that cross rather than looking away from it. In fact, it's just as Jesus predicted. He said that when he was lifted up, when he was suspended there between earth and heaven, he would draw all people to himself. Why? Well, because of the two things that Holy Week teaches us. Everything that Jesus went through, he went through willingly. And everything he went through, he went through for you. Hey everyone, Pastor Mike here with Time of Grace. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. And we'd love for this podcast to be a blessing to you in the days to come. So if you could share this podcast, subscribe so that every episode ends up in your feed, or just leave us a review, we would love more and more people to hear this message so that their lives can be surrounded and blessed by the grace of God. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.